Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a true crime parody podcast where the crimes are fake, but the drama is real. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast is not spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. Today's case takes us to Wyvern's Cross, Devonshire in the 1920s. Wyvern's Cross is the definition of a small town. While the people who lived there considered it a village, the reality was that it wasn't much more than a crossroads with fewer than 100 people living in it. It was a town so small that it had one building that functioned as the post office, the grocer, the haberdashers, and the ironmongers. Which, while it might sound convenient to have everything in a single stop, meant that there were few, if any, places you could go around town and get lost in a crowd. Your neighbors would know what you were having for dinner, the size of your underwear, and whether or not you had mice in your basement, all with a single visit. And knowing things about your neighbors was the unofficial currency of Wyvern's Cross. No matter where you and your family were placed in the social strata of Wyvern's Cross, the one activity that kept everyone occupied universally was gossip. Knowing what your neighbor was up to was the lifeblood of Wyvern's Cross. And any time a new person moved into the small town, which wasn't often, their every move would be noted, spread, and discussed across the whole village within the day. And the appearance of Madeline Cranemere was no exception. In fact, her appearance caused more than the usual amount of gossip because of who she was and where she planned to live. But it wasn't just gossip that Madeline Cranemere stirred up. It was because of her arrival that a course of events was set into motion that led to the death of Julia Elizabeth Mary Bricklay, wife of Wyvern's Cross doctor Edmund Alfred Bricklay. Now, whether or not Madeline Cranemere actually took an active role in Julia's murder or not is up for some speculation. But what we do know with certainty from trial transcripts and written witness testimony is that Dr. Edmund Bricklay set a plan in motion to murder his wife shortly after her arrival in Wyvern's Cross, and even more shortly after, rumors of an affair between Edmund and Madeline started to make their way around town. But what makes this case so intriguing is that if Edmund Bricklay had stopped with the murder of his wife, he would have gotten away with it. It wasn't until his arrest for the attempted murder of Madeline Cranemere, her new husband, and a close friend, Andrew Chatford, that police began to suspect that Edmund's wife's death was anything but natural. This is the twisted case of Julia Elizabeth Bricklay and her husband, murderer and attempted serial killer. I'm your host, Risa P., and this is Reader, I Murdered Him. Just because Wyvern's Cross was small didn't mean that it was immune to the kind of social stratification common to the rest of England. There was a clear division between the regular citizens of Wyvern's Cross and those who held themselves apart 
because of birth or bank accounts. Of the 100 souls living in Wyvern's Cross, there were about 20 who considered themselves equal, and Julia Bricklay was one of these rarefied few. While Julia Bricklay is the victim in this case, the press and police reports of the 1920s really focused on her husband and, for reasons I'll get into later in the podcast, Madeline Cranemere Bourne. And while this made for some sensational headlines, it doesn't give us a very well-rounded view of Julia as a person. In fact, in all the written records of her murder I've been able to find, the writers don't spend much thought on treating her as a victim. Many accounts almost go so far as to create a caricature of a woman no one would be too sorry about getting murdered. Here are just a few of the ways Julia was characterized. A woman who disapproved of facetiousness as much as she disapproved of most other things. In possession of a face not unlike that of her favorite horse. And, my personal favorite, the sort of woman who is dictatorial, even in bed. So, as you can tell from just those few quotes, even though Julia is our victim, there's not a lot of sympathy for her at the time. It almost feels like we're supposed to think she had it coming, and Dr. Edmund Bricklay is the real victim for having to have been married to her for so long. And maybe Julia really was cold, aloof, and ugly. Maybe her marriage was tortured, terrible. It still doesn't give her husband the right to murder her. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, if Julia and Edmund hated each other so much, why didn't they just get divorced? And if this case had taken place in the 21st century, maybe they would have. But in the 1920s, there was still a lot of stigma around divorce. And there would have been even more for Julia in particular, because Julia was part of the Crew Stanton family prior to her marriage. The Crew Stantons were old money British aristocracy, with all of the pride and prejudice of a Jane Austen novel. While they were once the most important, and wealthy, family in North Devonshire, Julia's father, Sir Charles, was terrible with money, and he preferred to sell off his land and estate over changing his lifestyle and living within his means. This led his family to near ruin, and himself to near death by alcohol poisoning. What this meant for Julia was that her options for a future in society were limited. So she married Edmund out of desperation, just as much as he married her in the hopes of social aspirations. By all accounts, their marriage was a disappointment on both ends. And if we stopped the story here, maybe, maybe, we could understand Edmund fantasizing about his wife being dead. She hates her life, she hates her husband, Edmund feels trapped. Everyone is miserable. We're all human. We know intrusive thoughts can pop up in moments like this. We don't act on them. But we know they're there. And Edmund admits as much in a first-person account of the crime. His decision to murder his wife, in his words, 
did not arrive ready-made, but as the fruit of much wistful cogitation. But don't let yourself be fooled into thinking Julia's murder was the action of a desperately unhappy man. Because the idea to murder Julia wasn't fully entertained until after the Bricklays hosted a society tennis party at their home. A party where Edmund met a Miss Madeline Cranemere. This podcast episode is sponsored by Perfectly Protected, the everywhere security system that makes sure you know what's going on around you at all times. And with Perfectly Protected's patented facial recognition technology, they've just added another layer of protection to your life. Do you find yourself driving across the country because you thought the scenic route would be more fun than flying? Only to catch yourself with a flat tire in the middle of the night? And the only place you can get yourself and your broken down car to is a hotel that looks like it hasn't had to turn off its vacancy sign since the 1960s? All you have to do is sneak out your phone's camera and take a quick scan of the face behind the front desk to realize that this guy, who's done nothing but talk about his mother since you pulled up, isn't who he says he is. And that mother? She's been dead for nearly a decade. Thanks to Perfectly Protected, you know it's safer to take that broken down car back to the side of the highway and try your luck with hitchhiking. What could go wrong? If this case were a novel, Miss Madeline Cranemere would be Julia Bickley's foil. Madeline is described as quite young, quite pretty, and quite rich. In fact, Madeline had just purchased, outright, an estate known as The Hall, where she planned to live. Alone. And while a young woman living alone was a nearly unforgivable scandal, her wealth and her address necessitated that Julia extend an invitation to her and introduce her around to Wyvern Cross Society. At their first introduction, Edmund claims to not having been taken by Madeline. He's unimpressed with her appearance and her style. But then Madeline invites him to the hall because she suffers from nervous headaches and needs a prescription for painkillers. At this meeting, the two get along much better. They spend hours talking about art and architecture. Edmund leaves the hall claiming to feel 10 years younger just because of their conversation. This is really the first time Edmund begins to imagine a life without Julia. Or so he claims. And the people around him begin to notice a change in his temperament. He's more vivacious, he takes things less seriously, he spends less time at home, and he goes up to the hall almost every day to, according to himself, sketch the grounds. But as Madeline and Edmund's relationship begins to grow, so do the rumors surrounding it. And Madeline tells Edmund he needs to limit his visits. This makes Edmund distraught. And that's the first time Edmund poisons his wife. 
His goal this first time isn't to kill her or even to cause her serious harm. He just wants to give her a headache so he doesn't have to deal with her asking questions about his mood or why he's been spending so much time with Madeline. But then Madeline has a change of heart. She tells Edmund she feels guilty about the affair and wants to end things permanently. Edmund says he'll tell his wife and get a divorce. But Madeline says she refuses to marry a divorced man, even if Julia is willing to dissolve their marriage. But Edmund, being a gentleman who thinks things through and not a hysterical woman, decides he's going to tell Julia about the affair first anyway and see if she's willing to divorce him. And to his surprise, as well as Madeline Cranemere's, Julia agrees. Her only condition is that Edmund continues to pay her expenses and that she gets to interview Madeline and determine whether or not she's serious about marrying Edmund. This interview is not out of any loyalty to her husband. It's because Julia knows Edmund's finances, and the only way that Edmund could support her and his new wife is if he really does marry Madeline, who could afford both the divorce and a living stipend for Julia. Unfortunately for Edmund, and herself, Julia discovers that Madeline is also involved with a Denny Bourne, and equally as serious about marrying him. Julia rescinds her willingness to divorce, and this, according to Edmund's written account, is where the idea to murder his wife first begins to take concrete, actionable shape. While Edmund is clearly a moron when it comes to relationships, he is a knowledgeable doctor. And Edmund comes up with a plan that will, in essence, get Julia to murder herself. He begins dosing her food with a medicine that causes severe headaches, and then treating those headaches with morphine. Then, on a day where he'll be out on a house call to establish a firm alibi with plenty of witnesses, he gives Julia a lethal dose of morphine to self-medicate with. And the plan works. Except for one thing. Madeline doesn't care that Julia's dead. She still doesn't want to marry Edmund. In fact, she wants and agrees to marry Denny Bourne instead. So Edmund comes to the conclusion anyone else in his position would. He has to murder Madeline and Denny as well. His first thought is to poison them with botulism. Edmund gets himself invited to tea at the hall and slips the culture into potted meat sandwiches. Fortunately for the Bournes, they survive this attempted murder. Unfortunately for Dr. Edmund, there have been too many suspicious near deaths and Scotland Yard begins to take an interest in him. On the 14th of September, 1929, Dr. Edmund Bickley is charged with attempted murder of the Bournes and the murder of his wife. But 
And here's the crazy part. He's found not guilty on all three counts. It looks like Dr. Edmund is going to get away with it. And he would have. Except Denny Bourne gets sick again. And this time he dies of typhoid fever. Dr. Bickley's luck runs out for this third trial, and he is found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder of Denny Bourne. It's only after his execution that this account of his crimes, disguised as a novel, is found, which was my primary source for this episode. But here's the weird thing. Dr. Bickley never talks about cultivating typhoid fever for poisoning Denny Bourne a second time. And he's pretty open about the other murder attempts. He talks extensively about poisoning his wife with morphine and making it look to her relatives like she was a morphine addict. He talks about playing with botulism and cultivating a strain that he believes to be deadly and then transferring that into the potted meat. But not once does Dr. Bickley ever talk about cultivating typhoid fever or using it to poison Denny Bourne. Which raises the question, was Dr. Bickley convicted of the one crime he was innocent of? And if he was, does it really matter? Thank you for listening to another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. If you can't wait to hear more about Dr. Edmund Bickley, serial killer, check out Malice Aforethought by Francis Isles from your local library or indie bookstore. This is a mystery that has been ranked number 16 in the Crime Writers Association Top 100 Crime Novels. So you don't even have to take my word for it that it's worth your time. And once you've read it, don't forget to jump into our book club discussion in the Reader I Murdered Him podcast book club group on Goodreads. I don't and will never have social media for this podcast because I value mental health over marketing. So if you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, because word of mouth is the only way other people can find it. You can get the monthly reading list by signing up for the stay-at-home creative monthly newsletter on Substack. And today is a very exciting day. I have my very first listener email to share. Dear Risa P., I'm so glad I found your podcast. I love true crime podcasts, but you seem to cover cases no one else has ever heard of. Like your very first episode. I never knew Stephen King got his start true crime cases. I couldn't wait to see what he had to say about the disappearance of Paul Sheldon. So I went to my local indie bookstore and asked for a copy of Misery. But, and you won't believe this, they took me to the fiction section. I tried telling the sales associate that I wanted the true crime book, but she looked at me like I was crazy. She said, and this is a direct quote, that Misery is a horror novel, and she is unaware of there being a real Paul Sheldon, let alone one that went missing. She even said that Sidewinder isn't a real town. Do 
you think that this could be part of a larger conspiracy concerning Paul Sheldon's disappearance and the publishing industry trying to cover it up? Sincerely, Jesse C. So, I mean, yeah, obviously. This has conspiracy theory written all over it. You should definitely be spending more of your time researching this and much less time interacting with sales associates who are paid minimum wage. And on that note, if you have your own conspiracy theory or bookstore revelation to share, send it to readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear it. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.